Welcome to the Safe and Effective Podcast, a show that dives deep into the world of medical human factors and user experience. I'm your host, Heidi Merzad. Are you passionate about making a difference in the medical field? Curious about the science behind designing usable, safe, and effective medical devices? Look no further. Every episode, we bring you exclusive interviews with experts from industry, academia, and government as they share their insights and experiences in the rapidly evolving world of medical human factors. From case studies to regulatory updates, we've got you covered. Stay ahead of the curve and learn valuable lessons that make a real impact on patient quality of life and user experience. Whether you're an industry expert or a novice looking to expand your knowledge, Safe and Effective, the Medical Human Factors podcast is for you. Join us as we explore the world of human factors and its impact on the medical device industry. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned and remember, be safe and effective. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Ah, yes. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. We're recording this episode live on July 13th, 2023. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hello, and it's good to be back after our week hiatus. Yes, we are back. We have an awesome show lined up for you tonight. We're going to be diving into hostile design. What is it? How could it impact social inequality in our cities? And that's not all. We're going to be answering some questions from the community. We've got someone looking to implement user research for their small company. We're also going to tackle the question about asking for advice on gaining confidence in their abilities. And just from today's chat in this like a live on the fly edit, a question about feeling, fearing failure in UX research. But first, let's go ahead and get into some community updates, programming notes, if you will. Tomorrow, this is the first thing I'll say, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 Eastern, there will be an HFES town hall. Now, this will be a great opportunity for all of you to show up and ask HFES leadership and others questions that you might have. Tomorrow's topic is getting involved internal affairs division, but there's going to be much more than just that. So please attend if you can. Again, it will be live on all the platforms you're experiencing now, as well as all the official HFES channels. Now, for the other piece of news, we were off last week, but that doesn't mean that we weren't doing some fun stuff in the meantime. Safe and Effective Episode 2 is out now. Join Heidi as she sits down with Maggie Reef to talk about a conversation from the medical device development from a device engineer's perspective. So all the human factors chat about device engineering, really interesting chat. I It's always weird. I said this in the pre-show because I sit in on these conversations. I'm not part of them. And so, it's, yes, I've lived this, but I'm listening to it. So anyway, go listen to it. It's out now, literally on any of your podcatcher platforms, Safe and Effective Episode 2. Barry, I have to know what's going on with the latest over at 1202. 
I've got to be brutally honest, and not a huge amount recently. The uh, We've had the same episode with Kate Preston. It's a fantastic episode, so really well worth listening. But we've had it up there a while because everything else has been flat out. So we've got no new episodes, or we've had no new episodes come up. However, there is a new episode coming in either this Monday or next Monday on Human Facts Integration, which is going to be really well worth listening to. We're just getting some final ticks in the boxes for that. And then we've got some other cool interviews lined up. Bit of a hiatus at the moment, but new content coming soon. Exciting. I'm excited because I finally caught up on my 1202 feed. So I'm excited for more stuff. Anyway, we got a great topic tonight. Let's get into it. That's right. This is the part of the show all about human factors news. Barry, what is the story this week? So this week we are talking about hostile design and how can urban design impact social inequality? This article explores the concept of hostile architecture, which refers to the intentional design strategies that control, direct, or inhibit human behavior in urban spaces. Examples include benches with armrests positioned in the middle to prevent people from lying down, metal spikes attached to surfaces to deter skateboarders, and high-frequency sound devices to discourage groups of teenagers from congregating. Hostile architectures has its roots in the defensive architecture of ancient times, and the Middle Ages, where cities were designed to control and secure their populations. Today, this type of design is used to address perceived problems and challenges in urban spaces, but it does carry significant social implications. Critics argue that their hostile hostile architecture perpetuates social inequalities and marginalises vulnerable populations, while proponents claim it is necessary for maintaining order and cleanliness in public spaces. However, research shows that hostile design merely displaces undesirable behaviours without addressing the root causes. Moreover, the ethicality of these design strategies is called into question as they deliberately increase discomfort and exclude certain individuals from public spaces. Ultimately, the conversation around hostile architecture highlights the need for a more compassionate and comprehensive approach to urban design, one that considers the needs and rights of all the citizens and seeks to create inclusive and welcoming environments. So, Nick, what do you think? What are your thoughts on the bench down your local park where you can't have a sleep on it overnight? <laughs> Look, I think this is a really cool topic and a great article over at UX Collective. I'd ensure I'd encourage all of you to go watch, not watch, go read the original article. I think there's a lot of really interesting points there, and is one of the reasons why we selected it as a topic to talk about on the show. I think this is very cool because it's something that it's almost like dark patterns in UX where if you think about sort of these things that exist to get you to do something that you may not want to do, it's just a really fascinating topic to me. And so cool topic, but is it not so cool from a basic human necessity standpoint? I'm not sure it is. I think there's, I'm not necessarily pro hostile architecture here, but I think is this or the fact that we have, or design for hostile architecture, a reflection of us as a society and our failure to address some of these root cause issues like homelessness or public disorder. Like how can we as a society better accommodate people in such a way that we don't necessarily have to do hostile design to get the desired behaviors that we want? Fascinating from that perspective. Barry, what are your thoughts on the article? So I'm in a similar boat. I really like this topic because from a human factors perspective, we get to explore this from 
from both approaches almost from a the different users, the different stakeholders involved, and really how do we balance that and balance them requirements off each other? So at one extreme, we highlight it in the article where, it's, where it talks about medieval design with walls and things like that. A modern perspective, we use fences, we use walls, we put barbed wire on the top of them, we put razor wire on them to control where people go and people's access. It's not that long ago, I used to know that where you had a brick wall and people would concrete broken glass into the top of it to make sure that nobody would climb over. And where we use these techniques to stop, say, loitering, like groups of kids hanging out where we know these groups of kids cause trouble. We know that these groups of kids have will do graffiti and street vandalism. That's then seen as a positive by the community because we have this inbuilt idea that we see a group of kids and they're clearly they must be doing wrong things because that's what groups of kids do, isn't it? Which is clearly that was sarcasm if that didn't come over. But then also like we the I guess the more emotive one really is where we see homeless people sleeping on benches and in doorways. But we can see that from a business owner's perspective. If you run a business or you're your own home, if you live in a block of flats or something, you go down to the hallway of the flats and there's people rough sleeping. Well, you don't want people sleeping in your doorway for a number of reasons. And if you're looking after the town or the city or the communal spaces, then the benches are made to be sat on. They're not made to be slept on. So working in this way, then actually you're using design abilities to make sure the seats are being used for what it is that they've been designed to do. Because they're a seat, they're not a makeshift bed. But then you circle right back to why people have to sleep on there in the first place. That is user behavior. That is, they are residents too. So if they can't sleep on there, they still need to sleep somewhere. But so just shifting them or we're just moving the problem out. It's an out of sight, out of mind type of thing. We're not fixing the other half of the equation, which we then therefore have a responsibility as a society to do. But bring that back to a human factors perspective. Is that our problem? Is that something that we should be cognizant of? given when we're trying to solve the problem how where is our moral boundary where is our thing on that because there's loads of other bits of elements where we deliver human factors without necessarily thinking about the ethical standpoint in society shall we say so yeah it's interesting it's that's why and i think it's a great topic because it yeah. brings everything in together but, yeah there's a lot of ways and there's a lot of places we can go with this discussion. I'd like to start off with a social thought. And if you want your social thought to be read on the show, we do post all over internet. So just comment and we'll find it. But Neil, one of our patrons here, ever carry Allen wrenches or other similar small tools with you while walking around cities asking for a friend? And he's right. There's, it is an inconvenience, not only for the people that they're designing this for. And like, it's interesting because who is actually designing these is it ux researchers is it human factors engineers is who is doing the design of this where it is intentionally i don't know trying to target a certain demographic i think it's interesting from that perspective i thought it'd be good to go over just a couple examples of this you mentioned a few in the blurb right armrests on benches in fact you can go and look at our thumbnail for an example of this one there's a woman trying to lay down and she can't do it because there's an armrest there so armrests on benches you think about things like metal spikes and i think you also mentioned the high frequency sound devices that are only being able to be picked up by younger ears, right? And so it's <laughs> targeting an age demographic. There's other different types of 
things that I think there's some really obvious examples and then there's some subtle examples. And so we can go over some of those. The anti-skateboarding, I don't know, they're like little metal strips that they put on curbs so that way people can't grind down them on their skateboards. There's other sort of obvious ones like boulders or rocks in certain placements so that way people can't sit or congregate in those spaces. There's also making the benches themselves sloping or uncomfortable. And I think being able to not sit in a place for a long time is probably intentional in a lot of cases. And then there's also some really subtle examples, like the high frequency one, unless you know it exists, that's not something that you are necessarily privy to all the time. If you can't hear it because you've already lost all those all those cells in your ear, then you're not going to be, you're not going to be bothered by it. It's only young well, people. Interesting yeah, fact. I, I could hear them up until I was about 30. Is it, they're meant to be j- just up until, until what, 18, 19, something like that. Yeah. Uh, I could hear them into my thirties. <laughs> not really. Cause really irritating, <laughs> <laughs> but there's some other subtle examples as well. Blue lights in bathrooms. And this is not one that I immediately thought of, but the, the blue light, it's being lit with blue light to make it harder to find veins that yeah. you can yeah you can read between the lines there or just to jump in we had a social thought on exactly that topic yeah uh, go ahead. it's probably worth highlighting so this is from kim darkin and she said she highlights it's awful in some cases it can do more harm so the use of blue lighting in stairwells and under bridges to stop people injecting drugs because it's hard to see veins in blue light. If someone is that desperate that they're injecting in a car park, a blue light will not stop them, but it will make it more dangerous for them and the community as there's more likelihood of a blood spill. Blood spill, yes. Surely the money spent on these initiatives would be better spent on, on support, which is kind of what we said earlier as well. But again, it's interesting, isn't it? It's that whole unintended consequence of what seems on paper, yeah, logical idea. But then it's that wider implication of so what? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a great, thank you for bringing in that that social thought. I'm just rolling here. We, let's see here. The idea of bench bars. Have you seen these? I've seen these and these are annoying where instead of the sit down benches, these are, you lean up against them and it's like just a place to lean and relax instead of sit and relax. So that, that brings in another social thought. Go for it. So just to, so Claire Haslam highlights most bus shelters. And actually what she's referring to there is in the UK, we've, we have a lot more of these bench bars as part of a bus stop. And I know of a specific instance. So when I was a, when I was a counselor, that there was a particular bus stop outside of somebody's house where people, where younger people in particular were congregating around this, this bus stop. And I got called into by the owners of these, of the houses right next to it saying, we're getting all these people congregating all the time. What can we do about it? And that was one of the solutions that was recommended was that we put in these bench bars so people couldn't sit. But then it was like, but what about people who actually need the seats when they come to get on the bus? So that was a bit crazy. But yeah, so we see a lot more of the bench bars being used in places where you traditionally have a seat. And then the use of uncomfortable material or design and when these seats or benches are made from uncomfortable materials or designed in a way that's uncomfortable to sit in for a long time. That's another subtle example of this hostile architecture. And then the last sort of example I have is narrow or uncomfortable sidewalks. And this is one where if you don't want large groups together in one space, you make the sidewalk narrower. So that way there's an intent behind not being able to 
gather in that area. And so I think these are some really interesting examples that we can think about as we look at this topic. And I guess we'll bring in the last social thought here that we have, at least in the show notes, is that this is by Sarah. And she writes, I imagine many stories can be told by people with disabilities, visible and invisible, about how they've been excluded from spaces. The impacts on the sense of place and active omission can seem like commission in design. And then also urban versus versus urban space designed to bolster the needs of children or older users or welcome pets, that inclusive community. And so I think this is a really interesting point that we can use as a springboard. What do you think, Barry? It's, it is a really interesting point that the is every space intended to be used by every person? So if you've got, so if a public space is turned into a skate park, for example, just thinking off the top of my head, that automatically excludes me from that space because the chance of me getting on a skateboard and surviving are very slim indeed. Equally, there's other spaces which aren't made for the youth to go and use that may be made for people who prefer walk through tranquil gardens and things like that. Even just general grass. Some people can't access grass because it's either too muddy for say, wheelchairs or people on crutches and things like that. They're not some things that are very, would seem to be very simple to, to access, maybe are not. But I think there is a difference in maybe not really thinking about exactly who should or a, focusing a, a space on a particular demographic, which I think is different to what Sarah's pointing out where she's highlighting. Actually, if you don't think about who is going to use the space and make a conscious decision that they are either included or excluded from that space or maybe not it's not focused towards them are two different things and i think she's quite right there but it is interesting so look at these going through some of these obvious examples so we noticed when we were out yesterday so some examples of these benches that have rested in the middle of them and in fact i've chucked a picture in the show notes of what of a, of, that was a live photo that we took yesterday which doesn't help anybody else on the podcast, but I can see it. And that was just... can see the notes. <laughs> That's true. And so that was just yesterday sort of highlighting the fact that there's no way. So it's just a normal, it's a wooden, metal and wooden bench with a metal arm right in the middle of it. So there's no way that anybody could lie down on it. I did ask Amanda to lie down on the bench to prove the example that she was unwilling to do so in the middle of the public forum. I think that, do you think that is different from the anti-skateboarding devices. So the anti-skateboarding stuff where kids can go and basically stopping them doing using the street furniture as a playground. So the street furniture, which is totally not intended to be that sort of use. Do you, do you think that's different? Do you think that's right? I'll just put you on the spot. This, yeah, this feels like a gotcha question, Bear. Because look, like the intent behind benches is to allow people to sit and rest. And if somebody is still intending to rest by sleeping or you're preventing them from sleeping by putting that arm in the middle of it, right? Just like you're preventing somebody from skateboarding, from, from skateboarding on with the metal strips. And, but what is the intent behind curbs and retaining walls? Think about it. What is the intent behind them? It's to define a space, right? It is to define either a, a sidewalk or like in the instance of a retaining wall, it is to keep things in, okay, like dirt or plants or whatever it is. The intent behind that is not to be a playground for people to skate on. And to me, this 
hostile architecture of including things like a center bar on a bench, that is a little different from putting the metal strips. It's a matter of maintenance versus perception. Because I think in the case of the metal strips, that is a maintenance question. When skateboards grind on curbs, it can damage them. It can make them unsightly. But if somebody sleeps on a bench, it doesn't do anything for the bench. It is a perception problem about the city then at that point, at least to me. And so I do think they're different in terms of the intent, because you could have very much like it's the difference between dark patterns and intuition, (laughs) where you do something because it's intuitive. And when it's something that you want to do, it's pleasant. But when it's something that is benefiting the company that is doing that dark pattern, then it's like you view it in a different light. And so I feel it's very similar to that, where it's a feature, not a bug to have the strips. And then it's also, it's definitely keeping homeless people out when you have that bar in the middle of it. Let's be clear. So it's a difference between perception and maintenance for me, because keeping the kids from grinding their skateboards down a curb is a maintenance problem because that's not their intended use. Keeping people from sleeping on a bench, the bench is for resting. So you just don't want people sleep in there because you think it's going to lead to encampments. So that's my thoughts on it. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, we might, I might agree more violently with you because I do think that the anti-skateboard devices, so if you're skateboarding off street furniture, off curbs, off things like that, the chances of you having an injury or doing something and hitting somebody else having an injury or damaging the the curbs or whatever it is it, it itself, that is not it's not being anti-social it's not being anti-people it's asking you not to not to ruin the thing there, there are other right. places to go on skateboard go on skateboard have fun but th- this is almost capsulates what i'm about to say about the armrest we know that kids like to skateboard i'm grown up like to skateboard too so we know people like to skateboard and so we turn around and say we see your skateboarding and we give you your skate parks we give you, certainly in the UK, we're seeing more and more pop-up skate parks, pop-up half pipes and things like that. So we recognize that people want to do this. And so because it's the kids and because it's cool, we build them nice little skate parks. To go That's and do great. It. And, and that means that we can turn around and say, will you stop skateboarding in our lo- in the public space and trying to endanger people? Go to the skate park. You give them somewhere to go. That's great. But and this is where the What if you well, don't have the money for both? Let me finish my good point first, and Go then, you, then you can go shreds. <laughs> this is my problem with the armrests on benches, because on the one hand, this is a great piece of human factors engineering. The requirement has been people are spending, people are sleeping on the benches, which is really not what they're designed to do. Um, it's not good for their own health. It's not good for the perception of this of wherever that where wherever it's that where wherever it's at. It'll increase littering. Include there's loads of reasons why sleeping on park benches is not great. A for the person, B for the local area. So we do all week. So we do, we've come up with a design here that stops them from doing that. Brilliant. Bit like putting the the anti skateboard devices on. We've come up with a solution. What we haven't done here is turn around and say you can't sleep here, but you can sleep over here. We haven't given that balance that 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 alternative place that, that we can that we do so all of these things i think need to be in in balance 
because it's a bit like you when if you tell your children off, you, you stop doing that or don't do that now, but you can go and do something over there. You give them that, you give them an alternative outlet. And I think that's where the whole, for us, that would be a the process or procedure that's put into place. So we have the initial requirement of, we don't want people sleeping here. This is how we're going to design that out. But you would have the so what part of that and saying the other bit of that, we've done the physical bit, but what about the environmental bit where you turn around and say, so what is the knock-on effect? We're going to have people who need to sleep somewhere. They've got nowhere to sleep now because we put in a piece of hardware. Where do then they then go? So you're going to count. You're going to give me a counterpoint. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, what if you had, what if you don't have the money for both? And that's exactly the second point that you were making there. It's almost like I shouldn't have interrupted you while you were talking. But here's the thing. You're right. Why are we spending money on skate parks and not homeless shelters? That's And that's not a question that we can answer. But also thinking about the cost of these patches, right? What is the cost benefit to having a center bar on a on a bench, right? It probably costs not that much to include that on the thing. The benefit, I I use that in air quotes for people listening. The benefit is that there's no visible person staying there for an extended period of time. Yeah. But you're right. What then the trade-off to that is that yes, they go somewhere else. Now the same thing can be said about the other example, the metal strips for skateboarding. What is the cost of building a skate park versus the cost of building or including these strips? I would imagine that the cost is quite significant to reserve a part of the land for a skate park versus just including these metal strips on the thing, right? That's, it's the same argument, but there's different intent behind them, right? You give a skate park for somebody to skate, because the thing that the curbs are not meant to be skated on. Like I'm arguing that the bench is meant for resting, maybe not for extended periods. And if you go by that definition, then fine. I think the interesting thing to me here is that when we look at the world through this lens, when we take away, imagine a world where we take away hostile architecture, what happens? We have people who are finding places to sleep and we have people who are using the environment, the city as their playground. And we also have people who are doing what many would consider socially inexcusable behaviors and practices like drug use in these public places, right? And so what exactly do, when we look at a world where that is happening, I think it would be much more likely that we would try to do something about it. And to me, Hostile architecture is a patch that says, let's just put this off to the side so that way we don't see it out of sight, out of mind. We don't have to worry about it because we've patched the good area. And again, good is in air quotes there. We've patched the good area and we're going to keep it tidy. So that way the perception of this area is clean. And we don't have to do about the other things because they're going down the hill to the park that really... We don't, this is what people see. Park, eh, whatever. They can find, they, they, so like, I, that's, to me, what is happening here. It's a patch to fix a problem. And then when it is out of sight, it is out of mind. And then we don't do anything to solve the problem. It's a much larger societal issue, but that to me is what's happening here. To play devil's advocate, and or devil's human factors advocate, is 
if my requirement is sent to me that I've got a public space, I will never be in charge of the city or the country, unless anybody wants to make me prime minister, then knock yourselves out. But I'm not. If I've got, if I'm in a position of responsibility of looking after a certain area, then I'm going to look after that area. That's my area of responsibility, and it's not. I don't have the as a human factors practitioner in this element. I don't have the tools or wherewithal or even responsibility to worry about society's homeless. Do I? So if I, if me or you were given the brief of we've got these places for people to sit in, but they're being taken over by people who are sleeping on them, which is not an intended use of a bench because that's what, it's not a bed. What can we do about it to make that? Because you could take away the, if you took away the benches and replaced them with single seat chairs. So there weren't benches, there were chairs closest together, but with gaps and things. Is that hostile architecture or is that good planning? Or is that, good design because you can sit on them. It's clearly intended to be a seat, things like that. So I guess what I'm getting at is from a human factors perspective, from a design perspective, these are good. These are ways of thinking around the problem and delivering what it is that they need to be. It goes back to what I was saying with my, with my initial thoughts of we get involved in other areas of design development that have an, have a consequence that we are happy to ignore. I guess without beating around the bunch, I've worked in defense now for 20 odd years. And there is a, I, we dress it all up in being very nice about what it is that we are engaging with and this, that, and the other. But fundamentally, there's elements there that, without being rude, put a kinetic effect and enables people to kill people with much more effectively. And this is almost the, a, a similar issue that we've, the people have come up with designs, which from a human factors perspective, I think are quite good, but social, sociably unpalatable. How do yeah, we, I was going to say, I was going to say, you call these things good, but is it <laughs> like it? I, I would argue that they're effective design. They they are getting people off the benches. They are stopping people they're, from they do the job. Therefore, they're good. Yeah, exa- they're effective. <laughs> they're effective. And what is good is a societal fundamental question that we all need to think about in our head. And yeah. so uh, that's that that is part of the question, though, would if we as a society thought that it was just that people don't have a place to sleep, would we then think this is good design, right? Do you think it's, do you think it's good design when you sign up for a service that you didn't mean to through dark patterns? Is that good design? It's effective design. It's effective design. I guess on the one hand, because we're dealing with homelessness and that's what that's more emotive because I think we're also good, good social thinking people. And therefore, we want to do the right thing overall. And sometimes I think it can be quite hard to distill the two, one from the other. I guess a less, possibly less, so the high frequency sound device, the, the mosquito device that they that you can put out. So as I said earlier, I can hear them outside. Or I used to be able to hear them outside shops till quite late on, even though it was promised that you no know, only children can hear. About and we want to deter groups of younger people congregating together. Why do we want to deter groups of younger people congregating together? It's a perception issue that we think because there's a group of kids all getting together, they're going to do bad things. And people feel intimidated. Again, going back to my cancer days, I was going past an underpass in the area that we that we lived in. And a woman came up to me and said, you need to do something about that group of people over there, that group of kids over there. And there's a group of maybe 10, 12 kids hanging around. I was like, what have they done? 
they're hanging around. And I'm like, get that, that, that's cool. What have they done? I feel intimidated. Okay, you, I, and it's perfectly legitimate that you feel intimidated, but what have they done? Have they done something to make you feel intimidated? Because you're on the other side of the road, they were quite far away from. So again, it's for me, it's this almost perception thing around just because we've got a group of young people, they're not necessarily who I am. Therefore, I feel intimidated. Maybe it's influenced by social media, what we see in the news, et cetera, et cetera. So why the need for these devices as such? Are they bad? Or are the fact are they keeping groups of kids away from certain areas? I know one shop that used it around their loading bay, which seemed a more legitimate use of it because they wanted to make sure that there was no groups congregating. So when the trucks reversed it, it was safer. At least that was a logical argument. But then we do, we have them in public spaces, and I don't think that's legit. I don't know. What do you think about, do you think these non, these sound devices aren't hurting anybody? No. They're, they're, look, the intent behind what we're talking about, the topic of hostile architecture, it is really a way to control or direct people in certain ways. And if you look at the origins of hostile design as we're talking about it today, this is another fascinating look that the article takes. So I, again, encourage you all to go read, listen to it. But they talk about the origin of hostile design. And in ancient times, the intent here was to be defensive, right? You think about building walls to protect your people from those that are not you, the other. There's always a fear of the other, the fear of the unknown. The more, this is why, just generally, why you see more progressive policy that is inclusive in major city centers is because you experience more diverse perspectives than your own versus living in the rurals where you don't necessarily get a diverse perspective. It's us versus them. And so when you think about trying to protect your own, the thought of hostile architecture of trying to control or direct another group, right? If it's homeless, that's another group. You do not belong to that group as a city planner or somebody with a job like you don't belong to that group. And so they're other. It's fear of the other. And that, again, like it's just getting at the ancient purpose of hostile design is where we have to come back to. And so when I think about hostile design in cities, it is because we don't we aren't getting that perspective in the design phase. Is it good design if we're not accommodating for all the users? If you think about a public place and public facilities, i.e. a bench, if you are not getting a representation of all the users, including those without homes, including those who want to skate in the public place, are you building something that is, is it going to be effective for most people? That's something that you can argue. Is it something that's good for all people? No, we can objectively say no. And so uh, we can objectively say that, right? We can objectively say that it's not good for all people. No, it's definitely not good for all people. Flip side, <laughs> counterpoint, does that mean that I should be designing beds in my public spaces? No. Why not? Because is it good for all people? No. <laughs> when It's interesting, isn't it? Because when you start driving through that, then actually you end up building nothing because you, because you offend somebody. Or you don't design for everything. I think, does this go back to, I guess what I said at the beginning is, as long as you're, if you're clear on what your intent is, who you are including and who, or who you're focusing on rather than not, then 
it's interesting because you, because for me, then you also then saying, I'm not focusing this area, this space is not for homeless people to sleep in. So therefore you've then articulated that you recognize that there are homeless people. So therefore you then should be turned around and saying, if they're not going to be here, where do they go? What is their option? What is their opportunity? If this isn't for kids to be on skateboards or groups of kids to go or groups of younger people to go, okay, it's not here. That's fine. But where is it? Where do they go? Where do, what is the, where do you set that other requirement? And there is almost a, that's, that for me is the, almost the crux of it. it actually goes back to a yeah. today. Is the thing of saying, if not now, when, if not here, then where? Because so in the plan, whatever plan that looks like, you've highlighted a set, a, a user set that might not have been thought of. And that's legitimate. We don't necessarily all think of all users all the time. But as soon as you, it's a bit like Pandora's box, as soon as you turn around and say, this set of people cannot use this public space, therefore there is a requirement for another public space for these people, whatever that is. And that's how your basically your user requirements come into play on this wider level. This is where we struggle within a human factors perspective because we've, and it's, we've done it around climate change as well, that we think around the human factors environment that we're talking about as being a singular space, a a, a, a bounded environment, a bounded place, a place of work, or it could be a vehicle, or it could be whatever. We struggle when it comes to the wider environment, the bigger, the bigger piece, right. the macro level. So that idea of macroergonomics, and this would this absolutely plays into that. Yeah, that's that that pretty much sums up my thoughts as well. I think this this is a one size fits most, not one size fits all, because. You do to make things equitable, you need that other space that will address the people that are not being served by these design decisions in the common area, right? So, if you do implement benches with armrests, also erect a homeless shelter. If you are putting up these metal straps, also build a skate park. If you are installing these blue lights, then also invest in drug prevention programs and education. If like the list goes on for everything that we're patching, there is an equal thing that we can be doing on the other side of it to help address the root cause. And I think we're both on the same page for that. This is just a fascinating topic. I like, I feel like we could keep going on and on because like we keep bringing up the same examples of those two. They are very easy to talk about, but there is like a whole list of them. And I'm interested in what others think about this discussion. So I'm going to call to action. Everybody go comment on, on this episode, wherever you're watching or listening to let us know what you think. Barry, any final thoughts about hostile architecture? I think there is a lot we can do in the human factors and ergonomics domain around this that perhaps we're not being engaged with or we're not doing because we've got, haven't got the broad enough viewpoint and potentially the influence where we need to have it. Therefore, in a similar to what you've just said, there is a call to action there to to happen about to work out right how do we actually get involved in this and how do we actually make sure our human factors is effective in this space. Yeah, sticking the problem somewhere else is not going to solve it. It's just a patch. All right. So thank you to everyone for selecting our topic this week and special thanks to our patrons. We also want to thank our friends over at UX Collective for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post links to all the original articles and our weekly roundups in our blog. And you can also join us in our Discord for more discussion on these stories and much more. 
We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Are you tired of boring lectures and textbooks on Human Factors and UX? Well, grab your headphones and get ready for a wild ride with the Human Factors Minute podcast. Each minute is like a mini crash course packed with valuable insights and information on various organizations, conferences, usability methods, theories, models, certifications, tools, and much more. We'll take you on a journey through the fascinating world of human factors, from the ancient history to the latest trends and developments. Listen in as we explore the field and discover new ways to enhance the user experience. From the think aloud protocol to the critical incident technique, focus groups, iterative design, we'll make sure that you're the smartest person in the room. Tune in on the 10th, the 20th, and the last day of every month for a new and interesting tidbit related to human factors. Don't miss out on the Human Factors Minute podcast, your ultimate source for all things human factors. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in human factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our monthly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and access to the full library of Human Factors Minute, a weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting human factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. We especially want to thank our Human Factors cast, All Access, and VIP patrons, Michelle Tripp and Neil Ganey. Patrons like you truly keep the show running, truly keep our operations smooth, and I can't even begin to explain like how much that support truly helps the show. Speaking of our Patreon, our dumb commercial read this week, and that's the official part of this show that we're calling a dumb commercial read, Hey there, Human Factors, HCI, and UX professionals. It's your favorite podcast. I don't know if I'm your favorite hot podcast host. Ready to deliver another exciting live read. Now I know. Wow, this host is always so enthusiastic. I can't help it if my delivery is just that electrifying. Anyway, enough about me. Let's talk about something even more electrifying. Our Patreon page. Yes, that's right. We got exclusive club just for you, our loyal listeners. It's called Human Factors Practitioner Tier. And just for a dollar a month, you get some seriously awesome perks. That includes a Discord channel to connect with other supporters for Patreons only. And enjoy the full audio version of our weekly podcast. We do a pre-show and a post-show every week, so you get the whole thing. It's like having a backstage pass to the most enter- the most entertaining show in town. But wait, there's more. At the $5 tier, you'll not only get all the benefits at a Human Factors Practitioner tier, but you also have access to the full library of Human Factors Minute. Yes, what out on the public feed is just a fraction of what we have backstage for you. Now, if you're ready to take the Human Factors experience, expertise to the next level, then Human Factors Scientist tier is for you. You'll receive all the other tiers. This is getting lengthy. So I'm just going to say, look at our Patreon. It's there's a lot there. 
and there's plenty of ways for you to support the show, and we make sure to give back at every tier. So, my friends, don't miss out on this exclusive opportunity. Join our Patreon, become part of the Human Factors Cast family. Just head over on to patreon.com slash humanfactorscast or click on the show notes. Remember, it's not just support. It's a whole new level of Human Factors awesomeness. All right. What do you think of that one, Barry? That was a little rough. But, uh, eight out of ten. I think you, you've done better, but you've done a lot of worse. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Let's get into the next part of the show. It came from. It came from. Yes, it came from. This is the wonderful part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics that the human factors community is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, give us a or follow to wherever you're watching or listening to help other people find this content. Algorithms, man. All right, so we got three up tonight. The first one here is by General Building 381 on the UX Research subreddit. They write implementing user research from scratch. They write, as someone with a background in design and cultural anthropology, I'm looking to implement user research at my small company to improve sales. I need guidance on starting a UX research role from scratch. Any suggestions on where to begin? Barry? Yeah, I think for me, if you're just thinking about doing it, why? Why do you feel you need to do it? Why? What do you think it's going to achieve? And therefore, what value is it going to bring to your small business? And the reason for saying that, it sounds really obvious to say, but if you actually sit down, write it on a bit of paper, whatever suits you, that will then enable you to understand the business need and therefore the business value. That enables you to scope out the initial job role and understand who it is that you actually want. Because this could be something that you think might just be an idea, you're not entirely sure what value it brings. Therefore, you might want to bring, you don't want to invest much cost into it. Therefore, you might want to bring somebody more junior in to maybe grow the role. Or you might understand exactly what it needs to do. You're absolutely convinced it's going to bring massive amounts of value, but you want that to happen quickly. So you bring in somebody, you you, you invest more up front, you bring in somebody a lot more senior, and, and hopefully they hit the ground running and bring in their experience of what they want to do. But fundamentally, just saying, oh, I think UX Research will do some cool stuff, that's the starting point, but you've got a fair bit to do. Just asking some simple questions to understand why you think that. Therefore, then it'll bring, hopefully bring value for you, for your business. Nick, what do you think? How would you get started in that position? Starting something up at a company is hard because there's already an established culture. And if this person is looking to hire UX research, then that's one thing. If they have a UX research background and how to build it up, that's a different thing. And I want to talk about the second piece because the decision on whether or not to include user research or UX at a company is separate. And I think this one, this other side will have a lot more actionable impact. And so when you think about trying to start something up from scratch, you have to change culture. And so to do that, you need to interact with all the groups. It's easier at smaller companies because then you know everybody involved at larger companies that you need a much larger support system to try to get that momentum of, hey, include us six months ago and not two weeks before the thing ships. There's a lot of a lot of things that need to happen in order for that cultural change within a company to happen. And so just understanding where that company is at, who the major players are in that process and trying to change the minds of those people. So that way it trickles down into UX research is probably the way that I would go. Okay, let's get into this next one here. How long did it take you to become confident in your interview skills? This is by on the UX research. Thanks. On the UX research subreddit, <laughs> right? Asking for advice. How many interviews did it take you 
and feel confident in your abilities. Now, this is user interviews, not like job interviews. Mm. Barry, what do you think? Define confidence. I think I'm more than happy and content that I can go and interview people. I can go and interview. That's not a problem, but only if I've done my preparation. Only if I've done the requisite steps that you need to go up and do that sort of interview in the first place. Because I can be the best interviewer in the world if I don't actually have the plan, if I don't have the questions in place, I'm going to be rubbish. I'm going to be absolutely rubbish because that I often say that the, the interview is only a quarter of the actual job because, yes, it's a bit where you're interactive. There is a level of practice and, and I guess experience there for when thing more for when things happen that you don't expect and maybe the way that you craft some of the questions or you're you're crafting the way that the interview is going to go and maybe you get a curveball that you weren't expecting being able to handle that type of thing is something that you do pick up with experience but even then I think it, it's it didn't actually take me that many interviews to realize that it was about preparation. I did trip myself up quite badly through non-preparation, and I swore never to make that mistake again. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, I think it, it is really all in the prep work. And I think there there can be a lot of flailing with juniors and not understanding what it is they're asking. And so I guess the actionable insight here would be to, when you do prep, Understand the intent behind each question. What is it that you are trying to learn when you ask them that question? Is it an opening to a deeper question that you're trying to understand their process? So it is a lot in the prep. Try to understand for, for them the best of your ability, to the best of your ability, what it is that they do in their role. So that way you can already start to meet them. If it's a brand new domain, brand new thing, you're going to try to go out and understand exactly not exactly, but most 90% of what they do in their role. And then to get that other 10% about the user needs, that's where the magic of the interview comes in, or even 80-20, that's fine too. Just understand a lot about what it is that they do, and then you'll find those surprises as you start to ask them, and you can almost have them challenge your assumptions, and that's great. So it is all in the prep work. That's it. All right. This last one here is on the fly decision we made tonight. We got a question in YouTube on our YouTube by Bailey saying experiencing fear of failure in UX research career. Bailey writes, I'm experiencing a vulnerable time in my UX research career where I have a fear of failure. Thoughts on this? Barry, fear of failure. I never fear failure. I'm completely okay. Lying. All right. Um, moving on. The, oh, I think the fear of failure is there constantly. And I think if you didn't, if you didn't, if you weren't concerned about failure, then I'd be wondering, are you challenging yourself? Are you doing, are you doing interesting things? I've spoken before about imposter syndrome, which I think goes hand in glove with this type of thing, of which is something I know I suffer from on a more than regular basis. But it's almost part of what makes this job interesting and exciting, which also leads itself to the that potential for you to think that it's all going to go wrong. So you, we go into new domains when you go into new teams because we largely work, or certainly I've worked a lot as a as a single person in a role. You may be the one human factors person or one ergonomist, one researcher in a in an organisation, and so there's a lot of pressure on you at that point. That makes it really exciting. That makes it really fun because you can go and scope things. You can do things, but actually you're also sitting there going, am I doing it right? What happens if somebody else comes along and looks at what I'm doing and goes, 
you're doing it all wrong. You should be doing it like this. You should be doing X, Y, Z. So it is all there. However, there is a lot of this where just be confident in your own abilities, but also don't be afraid of sharing your concerns. If you're in, if you got, if you're in a position where you've got line management structure, share it with your line manager, share it with your peers. And if anybody else then says, oh, I don't fear failure, then they're lying or they're not being honest with you for whatever reason. Therefore, they're not that good a mate. So talk about it. And talking about it, I think, is the biggest and best thing that you can do. Because not only are you highlighting to others where to hopefully get some confidence, some assurance from people that actually know you're great, but also you're showing to other people who may be having the same fear of failure, actually, it's fine to talk about this. But we can do it. So on, but on, talk about it. Nick, I've waffled on quite a lot. Do you fear failure? Are you going to, are you fear and failure of answering this question properly? I think this is an interesting question because I am thinking about this in a way that I relate to. So for me, fear of failure goes hand in hand, like you said, with imposter syndrome. But what is failure? And in the opposite direction, what is success? And I think when we start to think about what these things are, what is failure, what is success, and we widen the aperture of what success looks like and close the aperture of what failure looks like, then you can participate in the self-compassion <laughs> that I've had to learn when it comes to these things, right? So is failure, what, losing a job? Okay, yeah, that's unfortunate. Can you find another job afterwards? Is it going to end your career? What would you, like, I think that is something that, is there a career-ending move that you can perform? And then think about the things that would be career-ending moves. Have you done any of those? Probably not. Probably not. You might have, but I don't think so. Is it something that might get you fired from a job? Yeah. Okay, fine. Then move on. And it's easy to say move on. But again, what is the aperture of success and what is the aperture of failure? For me, success could just mean getting through this podcast and answering this question. It could also mean doing something successful at work. And what I found that is helpful is to document the wins or the successes that you experience or that people have said about your work. So that way you can remind yourself, ah, this is the perception. I have higher standards for myself that I need to work through. And if I don't meet those standards, is that failure? Maybe this is something that I've worked through with my therapist. I don't know. But it's widen that aperture of what success is, what failure is, and some practice that self-forgiveness because sometimes your standards of yourself can be so high that anything seems like failure outside of that window. And so that's where I'm coming from. Anyway, it's time for one more thing. Barry, what's your one more thing this week? <laughs> So this week we had an interesting thing where my daughter's finished her first year at university. And so we had to move her out of her university halls into a house that she's renting for the second year. And I don't understand how such a small flat, such a small apartment that she was living in can hold so much stuff. Also, she was on the third floor of this without a lift. And so I was got very bored very quickly of what of trudging up and down and up and down and up and downstairs. What was the most interesting? Or, and I did it. You could tell where tiredness was coming into play. Where I got up to, I knew I had to go up three flights of stairs. And, but more than we, I think it happened about three times. I actually got to the second floor, 
and opened up the door for the second floor bit. And actually, because all the stuff was piled on the landing, opened up, it's all gone. That's really weird. Where's it all gone? And realised I still had another flight of stairs to walk up. And when you're tired and you're exhausted and swear words are just not enough anymore, that's where I had to dig deep and crack on. So yeah, an interesting experience yesterday of doing that and then ended with learning more about different types of tequila and margaritas. So fun day was had by all. Nick, what about you? What was your, what's your one more thing? There's a summer sale and I got a Steam Deck. It's like a Switch, but it plays PC games. I will say I'm like fairly new to it. I just got it like two days ago. So I'm like doing all the setup. I will say two things. One, setting up games that are on the platform that you like Steam, right? If you buy games on Steam, you can play them very easily if they are compatible with the deck. And that's very nice. Very easy to use. Now, the thing is, if you have a bunch of different games across different platforms like I do, different stores, that takes a little bit more tinkering. When it get when you get it working, it's extremely satisfying. It's good for tinkerers in the sense that you can actually get stuff to work. It's not completely closed off. And so that's nice. And I'm learning Linux how to, and how to do all that. So it's cool. That's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode, enjoy some of the discussion about architecture. I'll go encourage you to go listen to our episode 254 on The Line, where we talk about that new city they're building without roads, cars, or emissions. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join our Discord community. Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you're doing, what we're doing, you want to support the show, there's a couple things. If you like what you're doing, give yourself a pat on the back. You deserve it, too. But if you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do for us. You can leave us a five-star review. We'll take that. That's free for you to do. You can tell your friends about us. That's also free for you to do and really helps the show grow. And if you want to and have the financial means to, you can always support us on Patreon. We'll take your money and we'll put it to good use. I promise. And as always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Stick around if you're watching live for a post show. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about hostile architecture and benches? If you want to come and talk about benches, then find me on social media, particularly on Twitter at Baz underscore K. Also now on Threads, which is interesting. But if you want to come and listen to interesting interviews with people in and around the Human Factors community, then find me at 1202 on the Human Factors podcast at 1202podcast.com. As for me, if you want to talk to me being a naughty bench, you can find me on Discord at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. 